Death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoy today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, who is an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Arizona in the United States. Dr. O'Connor's main research focus for many decades has been on grief, loss and social stress. And Dr. O'Connor has written a fascinating book called The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. O'Connor. Oh, it's just a pleasure to be here. So first up, what was your initial motivation to study grief? And then what has kept you interested for so many decades? Well, my interest in grief and grieving is both driven by scientific curiosity and also some personal experiences that I have had. So on the scientific curiosity side, I've always been fascinated with how the how the brain can encode these experiences that we have and so particularly it seemed very ripe to study you know something as important to us as human relationships and then how does the brain understand when a loved one has died and and why is it so painful and takes so long to really learn that the person is gone but At the same time, I've also known grief, which probably won't surprise listeners. So my mother died when I was 26. And I think it just, it meant that I was more comfortable with grieving people. So I felt very comfortable with people who cried a lot. And it meant that I was able to do these interviews and really try to listen to what people were telling me their experience was, and then match that up with the brain images I was seeing or the blood draws I was doing. And, you know, there's just so much that we still don't know about grief and grieving. And that's, that's really been why it's continued to fascinate me and I've continued to study it. I mean, it's so interesting to look at it from within the context of the brain and how the brain engages, because that's not the standard way of <laughs> of researching grief, is it? That's true, absolutely. And although it is a bit of an unusual way to look at grief, you know, neuroscience is really sort of the conversation of our times. And I think it's so useful to take a lens and and think of grieving as a form of learning and and then how might the brain be able to do that and i don't necessarily think neuroscience is a better lens than other ways we might view grief like a religious view or an anthropological view but it is 
another way that we can engage in what is going on with this universal human experience and maybe try to understand it a bit better and understand each other a little bit better. Grief is such an interesting topic generally, and um, my understanding is, and I might be not correct in this, but my understanding is Freud was the first or one of the first people to take an interest in researching grief. What is the difference between what we might call normalized grief versus pathologized grief? You know, those probably aren't terms that I would use necessarily, but I think we can think about the idea that each individual person is on their own trajectory. Each person experiences grieving differently in terms of uh, what it is that they're learning or how intense the waves of grief or how frequent the waves of grief are. And I think of them as sort of flavors of grieving. So for example, we know that the vast majority of us are actually very resilient. When we do good randomized studies with good sampling, where we're just looking at a swatch of the population, we know that the vast majority of us, as painful as grief can be, we actually do continue to function in our lives. We continue to get dinner on the table and we continue to get out to pick up our children from school. And so resilience is actually the most common or what I think of as typical response with grief. But the challenge is that there are those individuals who don't really see much change in their grief over time. So that a year, two years later, they're still having the same experience that they did right after the death of a person. In some cases, they actually may be doing worse than they were initially. And that is the group that we as clinicians are very concerned about because there may be and, and we know, empirically speaking, there are targeted specific psychotherapeutic interventions that can help to get them back on a more typical trajectory of grieving. So using new skills and with the supportive relationship of a therapist, trying out new things and dealing with some of the thoughts that have been rolling around and around and around in their head. So I think we do know that each individual has a different grief experience, and we also can see patterns across people. Mm. I want to talk a little bit more about resilience a, a little bit later. It's an interesting component to how people respond to their experience of loss. But how do you think time has changed how we either as individuals or as a society perceive grief and grieving? Well, throughout time, and I mean even historical time, um, and certainly in different cultures, the expression of grief can look incredibly different. So the way that one is signifies the fact that they're grieving, whether that's black armbands or cutting off your braid, which is a tradition in some Native American cultures. These are outward expressions of grief that look very, very different 
And it's very difficult when you grow up in a particular culture to look at the way another culture is, is expressing their grief and think, wow, that seems really strange. And so I think it's helpful to recognize that although the experience of grief is definitely universal, the yearning for the person who's gone, sadness, just the range of emotions that people experience, the experience may be universal, but the expression is very, very different. I think we're in a moment right now in time I've been teaching a psychology of death and loss class for about 20 years. And I will say that the amount of resources now that are available online, through social media, through research articles even, is astronomically greater than when I started teaching 20 years ago. So I think we are in a moment of critical mass where people want good information, and there is good information out there. There's bad information out there as well, but there is more and more good information available. And I'm noticing a change in how we use language when mm. we're talking about grief. Historically, just through my own experience, grief has been, um, you know, something to fight through or to overcome or mm -hmm. to... Uh, you know, that it's like on a on a finite timeline, that it's something mm -hmm. rather than, and the language now seems to be much more around, um, you know, like I heard a phrase recently that was growing around grief or mm -hmm. moving through grief rather than moving on and those sorts of things. So how, how uh, significant is how we use language in terms of our, our grief responses? I think language is really important in part because it tends to reflect the underlying concepts that we actually believe. We, we say things the way we think they work. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. There has historically been in Western culture a sense that this was a sort of journey you were on and the journey necessarily had an end and that was sort of a closure. Um, and some of this came about because of the the five stages of grieving that uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about in the late 1960s. And while that is, while the things she describes uh, are very accurate for what people experience during grief. So many people experience, um, you know, moments of depression, they experience moments of denial and, and acceptance. We know now from, you know, research since the 1960s has come a long way. And we know now that it isn't a, a linear process. You don't go through all of one stage and then you go through all of the next stage and then there's some end, but rather bereavement is having to adapt and, as you say, sort of build your life given that this thing has happened. And of course, we all are able to learn from our experience. We're able to um, find new ways to cope with difficult situations. Um, and so it is much more now, I think, a reflection of what people experience, which is that they, over time, tend to have more acceptance and less yearning, but that it doesn't mean that moments of grief won't overwhelm you, you know, 
years after a loved one has died, because in that moment, you're just aware of the of missing this person. Just because you feel grief in the moment doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the grieving you've been doing up till that point. Mm. It's true. I mean, my mother died many, many decades ago, but mm. still now there's certain situations you know, where mm-hmm. I get this mm-hmm. overwhelming sense of sadness. It's that she wasn't here to see this or experience this. And um, exactly. at other times I don't, you know, like she doesn't come to mind. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's fascinating how the brain responds to these things. So then what are the main factors um, that contribute to how we experience grief? Because something that I find really interesting is that we know that other animals certainly grieve Mm -hmm. but humans do seem to do it in this way that at times can be quite debilitating so what sort of things influence that Mm. I think that we might see other species as well where it is quite debilitating um so some of our um some of our social mammals, the larger social mammals that have children, raised children for a long time. So our whales and, and uh, gorillas and, and uh, elephants, um, they show behaviors that look a lot like what we see in each other and name grief. And we see, for example, in chimps to which we are closely related, there's several really excellent observational studies now that when a, a mother chimp, when her infant dies, there is often a, a considerable period of time where um, she is is very consumed with the loss and she stops grooming herself, which for a chimp is really a health uh, issue because they need to, you know, be clean, um, and actually other members of the troop will will step in, will will groom her, which I think is such a beautiful example of human beings when they are grieving. We know that having good social support matters enormously to their ability to, uh, you know re-regulate <laughs> to sort of find a, a stability in what's what's going on for them and to sort of um, manage the the yearning and loneliness that they that they often feel um, and so there are many factors that affect uh, what our individual grief will look like social support is certainly one of the really profound resources that we know makes a big difference. Mm. So how do you go about doing this research? Um, You know, you find people who are experiencing grief and you're looking at how their brain uh, responds to that. So what's the actual process that you use to see how the brain is um, reacting? We have used, in my own lab, we have used neuroimaging. We also use some um, sort of cognitive tests and behavioral tests that tell us a little bit about how the brain is reacting, how quickly, for example, you might have a reaction time test to to um, reminders of, of the loss. Um, but with the neuroimaging studies specifically, 
Um, we do a few different things, but one of the most common things we have done is to ask people to bring in some photographs of the person who's died. And then we can scan those into a computer and we match them up with photographs of someone who might be somewhat similar, but is a stranger to the participant. And then when they're in the neuroimaging scanner, in the functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner, um, we can show them these photographs on goggles so that what we're able to see then is the blood flow in the brain indicating what parts of the brain are being used as they look at this person who's died, as they feel that wave of grief, as compared to when they're just looking at a photograph of a person um, and seeing the sort of distinctiveness of that grief experience. And so are there themes? Like, have Absolutely. you found in your research that there are themes? Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, I think one of the, you know, it seems really basic, but one of the clearest uh, things that I think comes out of this is that we can repeatedly show that there are specific regions that are responding when a person has that wave of grief. And even that uh, particular um, different flavors of grieving, as I was describing earlier, uh, we can see patterns in the way the brain is reacting if you're having one flavor versus another of grief. Um, and so I think, you know, it is still a very early uh, neurobiology of grief field. Um, there's so much we still want to learn. And one of the important things I've realized is that many of the questions that I have are about grieving, about how people change over time as they update their understanding. But most of the studies, almost all of the studies that we have are a single moment in time. So really just the grief in the moment. And so there's a lot of research left to be done, really looking at what changes as uh, as maybe it becomes somewhat less painful or what changes as we understand what the loss of this person means for our life. It's interesting. Mm. What about uh, one thing that I've observed, uh, uh, I guess, in my role working in a palliative care service mm -hmm. is that... Um, Given the opportunity to talk about death, to talk about the relationship between life and death, um, and, uh, you know, as people are experiencing, so say, for example, in my experience where there's a, a palliative situation where somebody has perhaps an illness or whatever, it, you know, it is that's taking them towards the end of life, the mm -hmm. more that we can have conversations around death and life seems to have some element of effect on the grieving process post-death. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? I think about that in two different ways. One is certainly that we even have a, a study that demonstrates people who have a worldview that incorporates death. So that can be a religious view, but it can also be sort of a, a philosophical view or a, even sort of an agrarian view uh, that, that there is a circle of life and death. When we have um, this kind of a worldview, we have some sort of a structure of how we think life and death fit together. 
then individual instances of death, losing a parent, losing a sibling, something, um, it, it does seem to help because although it may feel differently than we expected it to, it usually does feel different than we expected it to, but at least there is sort of a, a, a scaffold a structure there. You've thought through some of these questions before. And so we know that that worldview is helpful. But the other thing I'll say is there's sort of a different set of conversations, which is that in palliative care, we often have the opportunity to have closure conversations, to get a chance to say, I love you uh, to the person who's dying, or I forgive you, or please forgive me, or um, the just the gratitude that we might feel getting a chance to say goodbye. And we know that those closure conversations can be very helpful afterward, not because the person doesn't feel grief, but because it feels that there's less unfinished business. Um, and so unexpected deaths um, can be more problematic, uh, especially initially in terms of their grief severity and situations where uh, there wasn't good palliative care or hospice care involved can be more difficult. Mm. Have you found uh, in your research that the brain responds differently to different circumstances? So I'm thinking, for example, do children or young people, does their brain respond in a different way to older people who may be much more accepting of their mortality or the mortality of their young ones? You know, we don't, I am not aware of any studies yet of uh, adolescents or children in terms of their brain responses uh, during grief or grieving. Um, so I think that will be an interesting new area. And honestly, uh, you know, in, in our neuroimaging studies, uh, one of the things that we find, this this may sound funny to listeners, but grieving really is a form of learning, right? There's there's all sorts of levels of learning from having to relearn all the habits, right? So I don't have to buy soy milk at the grocery store because, you know, my lactose intolerant husband has died or, um, oh my goodness, the plants, you know, in the backyard that he always watered, they're dying now because no one is attending to them. So at at very small levels and then at very large levels, like we had always intended to retire together. What am I going to do during retirement? At each of these levels, learning is really involved. And so the one thing that I can say that we've seen are some differences between maybe middle-aged and older adults is that when there is cognitive difficulty as people get older, um, not in everyone, but certainly it's more common as people get older, that that cognitive difficulty can make grieving more difficult as well. And, you know, the brain, I presume, also has to, particularly for, um, you know, where somebody may have been married for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. So mm -hmm. they've that the brain has become very familiar and habituated to certain patterns mm -hmm. of behavior. And I imagine it's almost like, you know, when you lose a limb, mm -hmm. you sometimes hear these stories of people still 
wanting to use the limb that's no longer there because their brain mm-hmm. hasn't quite adjusted. I mean, I don't know whether that's actually a fact or not, but mm-hmm. it sounds logical. But I imagine that, you know, if you've lost someone that has been such a significant part of your life for a long period of time, that the brain just has to develop new neural pathways in that adjustment. Mm-hmm. This is exactly it. So I write about this quite a bit in in the grieving brain. The that phantom limb uh, that you describe that is a real phenomena, um, and it and it's really problematic for people who've had an amputation, and the brain literally is trying to develop new neural patterns to understand that the limb is no longer there. I think there is a similar, uh, though not identical, uh, process that happens, and. I think it's this way, uh, you know, you can't really talk about grief without talking about love and bonding. And so when we fall in love with the, you know, the person who becomes our spouse or we fall in love with our baby, that causes neural changes in the brain. It literally reorganizes proteins in specific parts of your brain. And so once that bond is there, there's a way in which the brain understands this isn't you and me, like it's the barista and I. <laughs> this is, there's a we. And that we is a very different bonded understanding of the world. And so when it is an attachment figure that dies, someone who we, you know, we feel they will always be there for me and I will always be there for them, those updating those bonds seems to be the particularly problematic um, aspect of grieving, which is why, you know, it can feel very different to lose a spouse or a child than to lose an uncle or a neighbor or or even a, a colleague, um, because usually that attachment bond is stronger with a spouse or a child. Mm, so interesting. Mm. So then how does uh, vulnerability and resilience affect how the brain responds to grief? So if we, um, you know, for example, if we see vulnerability as a weakness rather as rather than a strength, or if we are uh, more stoic versus resilience, does mm. that actually influence how the brain responds uh, to a loss? You know, we don't have good uh, studies yet looking at that kind of, uh, uh, at those kinds of coping strategies uh, with regard to then what impact does that have on on grieving. Um, We do have some examples where we know, for example, um, people who are avoiding uh, the experience of loss. So sort of that, we call it experiential avoidance. So the sort of, oh, I know what this is. I don't want to feel that. I'm going to distract myself or something like that. Um, We know that that can have, um, that that can be problematic, uh, not even problematic. It, um, it can mean that our brain sort of has to work harder in a funny sort of way, because if you think about it, if you're avoiding thinking about something, then you you actually have to monitor to see if you're thinking about it in order to avoid thinking about it. Sure. But of course, what that means is that you're thinking about it more than you would if you weren't avoiding. 
right? Mm. Because mm. you're monitoring. And so that that was some work by Noam Schneck out of Columbia University um, that showed that that people who are really high in avoidance um, can have this, this more difficult um, cognitive load. I, I should say, though, at the same time, it's not that avoidance is always a bad thing. So I think it's important to have a really big toolkit of strategies, coping strategies, when we have to manage waves of grief. And there are times when it's perfectly appropriate to use avoidance. You know, I've you know, given this example before, um, but but sort of the idea, if you're at your daughter's soccer game or football game and you think, you know what, for 45 minutes, I'm just going to pretend nothing is wrong. I'm just going to pretend nothing has happened and I'm just going to cheer for her and that is going to be all of my focus. That's absolutely appropriate for those 45 minutes. But if it's the only strategy that we always turn to, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening, then we start to see problems because the brain doesn't have that opportunity to do the updating it needs to do. Mm. So what about you? What have you learned about your own mortality in undertaking this research over these many years? <laughs> it's funny. My my students sometimes tell me, you know, you're way too happy to be <laughs> studying this. <laughs> and I tell them, well, it's not unrelated. <laughs> so for me, as as I'm sure you understand from a from a Buddhist perspective, the idea that we sort of confront our mortality, the fact that I know, you know, today may be the last day none of us knows that gives uh it, it gives me a lot of motivation it gives me a lot of uh, a sense of the importance of today the importance of what i'm doing and what i'm choosing and how i am with people um and so for me it's actually important to me to continue to be aware of of death and dying grief and grieving and not to go overboard either. I I think it's also important to spend time with babies, you know, for example. Mm. But but by having that in my awareness, it really has become a, a great source of motivation and and you know seizing the day for me. Do you think? Um, I mean, I've talked to a few different people. Um, through this podcast and there's such a varying view on whether in the West in particular we are a death and denying society, um, you know, whether there is stigma or taboo around death. Uh, what has your research shown you in relation to that? Do you think that the research is indicating we, we are a bit of a death denying society or not? I think it, it, well, I should say, first of all, that I don't personally do this research. Um, and so I, I think, but, you know, of what I am aware of, I think there is so much variation and it happens in kind of concentric circles, right? So there are families where you can talk about these things. And then there are families where you just aren't allowed to talk about death and loss and, you know, planning for end of life care and, uh 
relatives who have previously passed on. And then at the level of, you know, sort of your your culture, your religion, or your uh, sort of subculture, there are some where it's a much more muted um, memorial services, funerals are a much more muted uh, environment, and others where there is a real sense of uh, of celebration or of emotional expression. And honestly, in those cases, I don't know that one is better than another. I think the most difficult thing is not feeling connected in any way to a tradition. Um, I think that whatever the tradition you might come from or have chosen in your life, um, it does give one a sense that others have walked this walk before you. And so being able to talk about uh, death and grief from that lens of others have made it through uh, these difficult experiences, these really harrowing days and nights, I think can be a great source of comfort for people. And then, you know, those subcultures all sort of exist within Western culture. And so I think I have certainly seen an increased willingness to talk about death and grief um, in the 20 years that I've been a professional, I suppose. Um, But that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, circles where there is sort of what do they call it? The uh, the toxic positivity that you can't talk about feeling anything other than you know yes. richly rewarded by the shopping experience you're having, you know. Yes. And so, so I think there's such a lot of variation. But my personal experience is that there has been a real shift uh, toward the capacity for uh, for institutions and and groups of people to talk about these topics. And have you found um, when you're doing this research that you talked a little bit earlier about social supports? Mm. So, uh, you know, it's relationship uh, that um, creates grief. It's the loss of a relationship of some description that that, that is the, the cause, I guess, of, of a grief response. And mm. yet it sounds like that um, relationship is also the key to moving through the process of, mm. of grief. So um, what sort of things, I guess, uh, have you found that are the greatest support? Is it like mm. spiritual traditions? And I'm not necessarily talking specifically about religion, mm-hmm. but, you know, I often hear people say, you know, connection to nature helps mm-hmm. them grieve the loss of their loved one or, um, uh, you know, as well as you know, friends and family and, and so on. I think that for each individual person, they're going to learn different things. And and that is going to be because they are so unique and the relationship with the person who died is so unique. And so I think that we can see patterns. Certainly there are people who feel that nature is a way that they find comfort and and understand, you know, the cycles of life and death. For other people, it's really about having a continuing bond and finding the way to continue to rely on this person for advice or, or carrying their values forward in your own life since they are not able to do that. Um, so there's such a huge range. So 
while I can say that grieving is a form of learning, what it is that a person needs to learn is very much an individual thing. And for that reason, I don't really think we can give advice to people who are grieving. I think that I love this metaphor of I can sort of lend you my glasses, right? And although the prescription probably isn't quite right for you, it might bring some things into focus that you hadn't really noticed before. Mm. But inevitably, you're going to have to give the glasses back. They're not, they're not for you. And so I think that supporting each other can be a little bit like that in the sense of you're willing to share your own experience, but only to the degree that it seems useful to the other person and that you're very much trying to allow them to have whatever experience they're having, right? It isn't our role to try to cheer them up. It's simply our role to be with them and to let them know we'll continue to be with them until they feel that they're in a in a that they've restored a life while carrying the absence of this person so there's a a slight distinction here which is we know even from really careful research that social support can help a grieving person not feel so lonely but it doesn't necessarily take away the yearning for the person who's died now it's very important not to feel lonely Right. So you're sort of able to do some things and other things simply have to be um, uh, experienced uh, from the inside. So you said um, just now that, you know, it's not our job to cheer people up. Mm -hmm. Why do we want to do that? Mm. Well, you know, let's be honest, being with people who are suffering is very difficult. Mm. I, you know, I've talked with hundreds of people who are grieving and I'm still sometimes caught off guard by the intensity of the anger someone might feel or just the the depth of their sense of guilt or despair. And so I think it takes a certain amount of willingness to sit with uncomfortable uh, feelings both in ourselves and in the other person, and to know for ourselves that this feeling won't last forever. It is incredibly difficult, but like a wave, it will eventually recede. And I think that the awkwardness of not knowing what to do and say is so accurate, right? Sometimes just naming it is very much the best thing to do. I really have no idea what to say, but I really want you to know I'm listening and I want you to feel that you can talk to me, but we can also just do something together in silence. You know, we can go for a drive, we can watch a movie, we can, you know, do something else that doesn't require you to talk through your feelings. So the awkwardness I think is it's just because everyone's in an unusual situation that's very intense. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, because we often have this awkwardness and this difficulty um, mm-hmm. around death and grief and knowing what to say, do you think uh, that there are any cultural or social shifts that we can do more on a collective level to better Mm. support 
those who are experiencing loss? I do think that grief education makes a tremendous difference. Uh, Most of us, when we experience grief, it is so intense and so um, unexpected. Uh, You know, as, as our life expectancy has increased and including our infant mortality has gone down. Many of us don't experience the death of a, of an attachment figure of a bonded person until we're, you know, in middle age. And so that means that it just seems so unbelievable and unbearable. So I think that grief education can be enormously helpful in, for people who are grieving and for the people who are around those who are grieving, just to understand a little bit better how it works and, and a little bit of, you know, potentially what to expect or um, just an understanding that, you know, grief comes in waves is in and of itself often quite useful. Many people after reading the grieving brain have told me just the idea that there is something physically happening in their brain is very comforting to them to think, ah, it's not that I'm making this up. This is something that my brain is trying to deal with and even physiologically trying to deal with. So I, I think grief education could go a very long way to helping us all um, manage grief of ourselves and others with a little more grace. And I wonder to, I mean, as a Buddhist, we think a lot, meditate a lot, reflect a lot Mm -hmm. on, uh, you know, the certainty of death. You know, death Mm -hmm. is absolutely certain, but time of death is uncertain. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if the fact that we familiarize ourselves with that has a direct effect on how our brain fires. I wonder too, and you know, I'll be honest that that we don't have any studies of that, Uh, but uh, I I think it is, it is certainly, it is certainly possible. Mm, It's interesting. (laughs) Mm, It is. All right. Well, look, uh, thank you so much. Uh, We must go. And uh, I know that you have uh, many things to do. And I really do appreciate that you've taken some time out of your schedule to to talk with us here in Australia today. Uh, So thank you so much. It's a truly, truly fascinating subject. And I look forward to ongoing research where we understand much more about Um, the brain and our internal activity and the brain and how it responds to external activity. (laughs) Thank you so much for this conversation. It's so important to, to bring this to people. Thank you. Thank you so much. On the next episode of What About Death, I'm speaking with Dr. Pema Dirdl, director of the Jalu Buddhist Meditation Center in Toowoomba, and very recently retired Associate Professor of Writing, Editing and Publishing at the University of Southern Queensland. Dr. Pema shares his experience and insight into the value of using memory and memoir to understand our perception of dying, death and grief, and how both memory and memoir can be used as a tool for processing the thoughts and emotions that arise when we are confronted with our own mortality or the mortality of others. I hope you can join me then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast. 
brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe and tell your friends and family about us too.